Welcome to the Global Robotic Assisted Surgery Podcast, or GRASP for short. We release weekly podcasts featuring insights from leading surgeons and other surgical professionals. Our host for today is Mr. Nathan Nagel. He is a successful serial medical entrepreneur with 25 years of experience in medical, surgical, medtech and biotech businesses. We hope you enjoy the GRASP podcast. Hello, my name is Nathan Nagel, and this is the Global Robotic Assisted Surgery Podcast. Today, I have uh, Dr. Brian Cohen with me, and it's a pleasure and honor to introduce Dr. Cohen. So, Dr. Cohen, there's loads on the internet all about you, but in your own words, can you tell our audience about you, please? Um, yeah, you know, it's it's interesting. I, I was not really involved in social media until a couple of years ago. Um, so, you know, whatever's on there is probably, uh, hopefully stuff that I've had, uh, influence on. Um, but in a nutshell, you know, I'm an orthopedic surgeon that, uh, grew up, uh, in New York and I now practice in Ohio. Uh, I was fellowship trained in sports medicine, but, uh, have a, a wide, uh, uh, array of, uh, different, uh, areas in orthopedics that I cover. I, um, operate in the hip, the knee and the shoulder, which is a little bit unusual, um, but uh, where I started my practice in um, Central Ohio, you know, I really had to be uh, everything for everyone as opposed to, a, you know, just an individual specialized. Um, you know, I, I enjoy uh, health and wellness. I enjoy, uh, I have two young girls uh, that occupy a lot of my time. So very much, uh, you know, family is very important and friends and uh, obviously a successful outcome for my patients is, is uh, utmost important. And there are some millions of orthopedic surgeons, but you've particularly succeeded. So what I'm interested to know is uh, is why. So what I found from speaking to people over the many years is there's different ways of living and there's different ways of approaching things. Because then of all the people, why do some people get to the top and some people struggle? Now, you did mention earlier about family, friends and social life which is incredibly important for sustained success. But how come you've reached the top of your game? How would you describe the the way that you live and the way that you approach everything? Over to you. Uh, you know, I think it comes down to um, having focus, um, having uh, a vision, um, you know, wanting to, you know, uh, really be the best that I can be. Uh, you know, I learned very uh, early on in my education that I was not somebody that could, um, you know, not succeed without putting in the work. Uh, so, you know, it's very much uh, being dedicated to, you know, what I'm trying to accomplish. Uh, I think success, you know, is different for everybody. Uh, you know, my uh, goal has always been to, um, you know, be a choice that people seek in terms of orthopedic care. Uh, I think it's important that when people come to see me that they feel like, they're being treated like a member of uh, of, of my family, uh, you know, uh, getting attention, uh, getting access. Um, you know, if, if it's something that I can't do, I'll let them know. If it's something that I feel very comfortable doing, I'll let them know that as well. Uh, and at the end of the day, I think it's just, you know, you have to be confident in what you're doing and, and just be honest with yourself when you're making these decisions. Um so I think, you know, like I said, success is is defined differently by everybody, but I feel very comfortable in, in where I am in my career and very happy with uh, with the road I've traveled. I think the, the key words that I brought out from there 
whether it's the how you view patients, right? Because then if you're operating on kind of someone that you family, someone that you care, there's the passion and not just the uh, not just the intellect in, in goes in there. And then I'm, I'm brought, bringing out that it's kind of like the value set that you bring to the game. And then, which is probably where you grew up as well, because then most of our values are instilled in us that uh, from our family and where we grew up and cultural wise. And that often dictates because I'm super interested in the personality types and value sets and how, how surgeons think, because then it does matter because it does affect outcomes. So could you just give us without too personal your childhood, your bringing up and things like that. How did you learn the this very family orientation? Yeah, I mean, obviously, I think it goes back to my parents, you know, you know, thankfully, they're both still alive. And, um, you know, I have uh, two, two brothers. So, you know, three boys, um, you know, I'm sure it was hectic for my parents. Um, but uh, it was it was nice to be in the middle, you know, I got to be a younger brother and an older brother. Um, but I, I, you know, like I said, I think it's just, you know, my dad, you know, just watching him do what he did and, and work hard as a pharmacist, probably not um, as rewarding as a career as as he would have wanted, but knowing that this is what he had to do uh, to support his family. So seeing him get up early and come home late and, and you know, drive hours uh, commuting into the city, uh, I think that kind of gave me the foundation. Um, you know, but like I said, when, I, when I'm talking to patients, you know, my parents are in their 80s. So if I have a, an elderly patient that's asking about an operation, you know, I kind of related to, and I, I've said this before, you know, I said, my mom's 80, I, I would not recommend this operation. I just had a patient the other day with a shoulder issue um, that I would, I said, look, let's, let's try everything but surgery, you know, because if you were, because they said, what would you do if I was your, your mother? And that's what I said. I said, I would tell my mom not to have surgery. I would say, let's exhaust all these non-surgical options. And if we can get you to the point where you're comfortable, then that's great. Um, you know, and there are issues that I dealt with personally in my shoulders that I'll say to a patient, you know, if it doesn't affect your sleep and it doesn't affect your job, you know, don't do the operation, do, you know, live your life. You know, I have shoulder issues. It doesn't affect my sleep. It doesn't affect my job. So I live with it, you know? So I think it's just, you know, really just trying to bring it back to how would I treat myself or a member of my family? And then kind of using that uh, with, you know, everything that I've learned over the 23 plus years that I've been in practice. Make, does make sense. So when advising kind of younger surgeons, and then it, it do you say that kind of like to do connect and to do empathize and to do have that in kind of integral approach, which all sounds obvious, but I've met a lot of people who say disconnect because then you're less nervous and you you don't feel the pressure less. Do you when you do connect with people, do you feel more pressure because then it's valued or how does it affect your pressure and stress around the anxiety? Yeah, I, I mean, you know, like they say in, in sports, you, you remember your losses more than your wins. So, you know, everybody has complications and anybody who says they don't have complications is probably not being truthful. So, you know, I remember people from years ago that I've, you know, struggled with uh, medically. And so, you know, I, and I don't think that would change, um, you know, based on how I treat people. You know, I, I think it's important, you know, and, and this goes just beyond your patients. This goes with uh, how you treat, you know, the people that you work with, whether it's in your office or in the operating room. You know, nobody comes to work to 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 not do a good job. You know, no surgeon uh, 
you know, indicates an operation that they don't want to be successful in. Uh, so I think it's just, you know, being calm, being confident, uh, and keeping everybody in the room on the same page. And, and, you know, if you treat people well, you can get through anything. And I think it's important that not only do you carry that with your patients, but you also carry that with your staff and, and the people that you come in contact with. That does make sense. Looking at that kind of competence and coolness and calmness. Now, I've read, but you're the expert, so you tell me that some of the downsides with a robotic assisted TKA and THA can be that it can be slightly longer operative time. However, with experience, that comes back down to kind of a comparative. So how do people get to that kind of like competence level and how much does the augmented reality and virtual reality and the new different training come into this? Or do you, is it really down to just logging hours in the OR? I definitely think experience matters. Uh, you know, we definitely uh, early on, we looked at um, our initial 50 cases uh, done robotically uh, and then follow that up with the next 50. And the, you know, the time has really come from, you know, being more uh, initially and now, you know, equal or less than when we did it manually. Um, but I think that, like you said, it comes with experience and understanding, you know, what are we trying to accomplish and 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 where does the technology, you know, uh, support and enhance what you're doing versus hinder or become uh, kind of a gridlock, you know? So really, uh, I think, um, over the years, and we and I've been doing robotics, you know, now for about six years consistently. Um, you know, it's been you know a blessing for me, and I, I think a blessing for my patients, and I think it just comes from that experience. Now, on the train of personalization and uh, connecting, I've read um, that um, some of the different robots now, such as the one that you um, are on your site uh, are an expert in have more of a, like a personalized surgery approach because of like utilization of the CT scan. And then it's really down to their contours and their anatomy. So it is personalized surgery, the way forward that, that you think, and what do you see as the next step in personalized surgery? Yeah. So, you know, with the Mako, which is what we utilize, um, and it's, it's very similar with a lot of the systems, but Mako is based off a of CAT scan. Um, and it's very, like you said, it's very particular to the patient. Uh, and, you know, if you're doing uh, bilateral knee replacements in a patient, you know, it could be different operations in terms of how you're correcting the anatomy and even the size based off the patient's bony anatomy, uh, you know, from one knee to the next. So uh, although the implants aren't personalized, like some of these systems out there that, you know, create the implant off of a, an MRI, uh, you do really match it to what the CAT scan is and what the bony structure is, both with the uh, size uh, of the implant you'll be using based off the bony structure and also the anatomy and the alignment you're trying to correct. Um, you know, what the future looks like, uh, you know, definitely augmented reality is 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 on the, on the upswing. And, um, you know, I, I've been involved in some of those initial uh, uh, visuals. Uh, initially, it was more just uh, the surgical plan is now in your field of view while you're doing it, which um, can be distracting if it's not really uh, aiding the surgery. Uh, newer things that are coming out is that are actually being able to register um, the bony anatomy, whether it's in the shoulder or the knee or the hip uh, virtually, and then you know being able to identify landmarks based off of that registration. So I think the the evolution is going to be where we do a lot of our 
surgical planning and identification of landmarks uh, augmented. Um, but there is something to be said of having, you know, specifically in the knee when you're doing angular cuts to have controlled cuts and also the safety factor of the um, of the device not to go past the bony landmarks, you know, and then get uh, into, you know, areas of concern, like in the back of the knee going too far when you're cutting the tibia and getting involved in the neurovascular structure. So there is a safety benefit to having that uh, controlled by, you know, we'll call it robotics, but, you know, based off of a CAT scan and, and you know, mapping the bony anatomy accurately. And then intraoperatively, I mean, this is well reported that the, the benefits, but what about uh, postoperatively? Uh, looking at THA and then dislocations and things like that, uh, you know, for, you've been doing this for six years now. How have you found yeah. that the outcomes post-wise? Yeah. So, you know, one of the things that we have that I, you know, I've personally noticed is that, um, you know, recently we switched to almost exclusively the, uh, in, in the knee, uh, the in-growth implants. So the cementless implants. And what I've seen is our, uh, revision rate in the, in the first two years is, is basically zero, you know, that, you know, wow. which is really different than when we're using cemented. There's always, there was always, you know, those outliers that, you know, the cement fixation would not hold or, or whatever the reasons were. And, you know, I found that we were doing revisions within the two years, you know, on our cemented, but we haven't seen that with the cementless. Uh, I'm not saying that cementless is, you know, an end all be all, but in, in what we're experiencing or I'm experiencing it, it, it has been very successful. And then as far as dislocation, you know, um, I'm a traditional posterior approach, you know, surgeon. Uh, it's how I was trained, uh, how probably most of the people uh, in my age group uh, were trained. Um, you know, anterior has its place. Um, but, you know, like I tell patients, I had a patient yesterday uh, talk to me about hip arthroscopy. I've done one hip, hip arthroscopy 20 years ago, and I told him, I said, I don't think you want me to be my second patient who had a hip arthroscopy. So I tell patients, you know, I don't, you know, I'm comfortable with posterior approach. You know, this is where I've seen my success. Um, you know, I have patients who I would say do as well as an anterior approach, you know, uh, if you compare them side by side. Um, so on my hands, posterior approach is, is, is what's best. Robotically, what we've seen is, you know, any risk of dislocation has really gone down. Uh, tests, you know, it's, it's, it's one out of, you know, every hundred, it's, it's a very rare occurrence that we wow. see this. Okay. And I think it's, I think it's because, you know, now knowing, going back to the bony anatomy off the CAT scan, we're using the right size implants and intraoperatively, we're getting a better sense of um, anatomic positioning, uh, you know, based off the bony anatomy. And then also what we're, what I'm seeing less of is, you know, complaints of leg length discrepancy. So, you know, we're really understanding where the uh, leg length is pre-op and where we finish post-op and, and having those conversations uh, with the patients. So I think that there's a value to uh, objective data um, and having conversations with patients around what we're doing uh, intraoperative. Makes sense. Now you mentioned preoperatively. Now I've read, you tell me how much true it is, is um, part of uh, your success is not just what you do in the OR, it's actually all the stuff beforehand, meaning that um, you spend a lot of time educating the different referring physicians and working with people to make sure that you get to the right candidates. So therefore you're not going, no, not you, no, not you, no, not you. How much of like of an ecosystem do you think of as a, as a value for the surgeon? 
you know, one of the things that we created uh, years ago was a, a kind of an internal referral system. So, you know, the, the surgeon is kind of the end of, of the uh, of the pathway for, for patients, you know. Uh, so what we've done is we've we've I've surrounded myself with non-operative orthopedic uh, or sports medicine doctors that really can understand, you know, the patients that they can treat successfully without being referred to me, whether it's injections or biologics or, you know, or physical therapy, whatever, uh, you know, they feel they have in their uh, tool bag to, to treat these problems. Um, but also recognizing those patients that, uh, you know, need to uh, be referred on to surgery, having, either having failed um, the, their non-operative approach or have, uh, you know, come in with an acute injury that really requires surgery. So it's working with them closely. And then, you know, once again, not every patient that gets referred to me is an operation. And we have conversations about, you know, what they've done that has been successful and what they can do additionally that may not have been tried. Um, you know, so I think, you know, what I tell patients is that you can't have a surgical complication if you don't have surgery. So let's figure out, you know, yeah. what we can do non-operatively to get you to where you want to be. And if we can't do that successfully non-operatively, let's talk about the surgical options. Makes sense. So do speak to people who say that, you know, they're they're not logging the right hours with the right patients because they're not getting the right referrals. It seems that your approach to getting that ecosystem right has been part of the success. Because if, you, if you're managing to get the right patients, you log in the hours, you're getting the right cases, your exponential code goes off. It's trying to just bring it out for the uh, for the residents to say it's not just in the moment, um, but your thought approach seems to be that it's the whole bigger picture of the 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 surgeon within the ecosystem rather than just the surgeon at the table. Yeah, I, I mean we don't do this alone. You know, this is not you know uh, orthopedics as I've said before and even on on social media. You know, it's a team sport. Um, and it's not just a team sport in the operating room, which is obviously the hyper-focused portion of, the, of what we're doing. It's a team sport in, in, you know, how the patients, you know, come to you, you know, uh, and, and how you treat them and, and what, you know, nobody wants to, to see a surgeon that every, you know, the only thing that comes out of the, you know, their mouth is that, you know, you need an operation. You know, I tell patients all the time, we don't treat x-rays, we treat people. You know, you may have an x-ray that looks like your knee says you need a knee replacement, but clinically, you may not have those issues and you may, you know, be dealing with something else that may be unrelated to you, but the x-ray was done for whatever reason. Uh, so, you know, like I said, we don't treat people, we don't treat x-rays or MRIs, we treat people. And, and the goal is to, you know, avoid a surgery unless it's necessary. And, and looking at the scans is the, um, I'm, I'm making an assumption here, but the, the quality of the interpretation of the scans and the people doing the uh, CT scans also make a, an impact on the personalization of the operation for you as well? Correct. And, and uh, you know, the scans for, you know, the CT scans were not a traditional knee scan if we're doing a total knee or a traditional hip scan. Uh, if we're doing a total hip, it really incorporates the entire uh, lower limb to, to get the alignment and stuff. So there is definitely um, quality control that goes into it. And, and, you know, so unfortunately, it's one of those situations where if you don't have what you need, sometimes you have to repeat these scans, which... Is obviously something we try to avoid and try to educate uh, the techs that are doing these scans that you know this is what we need. So it's 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 a one off when we have that situation, but uh, you know we're not going to do something with uh, inappropriate data. Uh, you know the plan is based off of the scan. If the scan's not right, then the plan's wrong. Makes sense. 
So just now let's um, start to, to go into looking at the teaching of the residents. So let's say someone's, excuse me, a, a very proficient uh, lab surgeon and they want to start on their journey to become a RAS surgeon. What would you advise someone next in terms of like next 10, you know, next five steps or something like that to, to moving into a new realm? Yeah, I, I think when whenever you're going to take on new technology, I think it's important to, you know, do, do your research. You know, before I, uh, I, I started with the Mako, I did visit, uh, you know, a surgeon who had been doing many of these. Uh, you know, we spent the day with him and watched his process. Um, and then also, you know, I, I've seen a lot of technology that I, I just didn't feel was right for me. I'm not saying that the technology is not right for somebody else, uh, but it wasn't right for me, whether it was the, you know, the CT uh, guy, you know, the mapping that we used to do with the different um, uh, technologies that were out there. Uh, but I think it's important to, you know, do the research, uh, spend time with somebody who does these procedures and understand where they see see the advantages uh, and then obviously you know you, there are there are labs that you can do through these different companies to get uh, an understanding of how the process works and then you just got to figure out you know is this something that you feel that you can incorporate into your uh, kind of continuum of how you do your operation and is it, is it a disruptive or is it uh, kind of um, an additive uh, you know one of the things uh, you know with you know, these uh, robotic technologies is that there's a line of sight that needs to be unblocked so that the computer can see where the patient's leg or hip is in space. Uh, and it's, there's definitely a nuance to how do you, you know, we call it make a limbo, you know, how do you position yourself so that you can be an assistant or, or do what you want to do surgically and not get in the way of the, uh, of the arrays that, uh, that need to be seen to accomplish the goals. That makes sense. And um, from a, a lot of people that we've spoke to and uh, over the many years of, of working with surgeons, there tends to be a lot of travel uh, involved in, in this learning. So if you want to learn from someone, you've got to sometimes people just generally do have to travel to be with their proctors or to be with the, uh, the people that want to learn from. Because, yes, there's a tremendous amount that can be done online, but it's not as good as seeing someone being next to someone. Yeah, I think it's very important to be, especially in the operating room, to be in, you know, uh, over the years we've trained, you know, over 100 surgeons from different parts of the United States and even parts of the world. We've had surgeons from New Zealand in in, in town. We've had surgeons from Germany um, over the years. And what we were able to do is we were able to let them actually scrub into the operation, you know, obviously, so that they could see specifically more in the shoulder where the glenoid exposure is really something that you need to be looking in as opposed to, you can't see it from, uh, you know, behind the surgeon's shoulder. So you have to be right in there. Um, so how do you get exposure and stuff like that? So I think it's important not only to be there or be present, but also if you have those opportunities where you can actually scrub in, uh, you know, so, you know, you, you talked about uh, residents and their future plans, you know, uh, a lot of them have um, uh, elective time that they can go spend time with other surgeons. Uh, you know, when I was a resident, I spent time in um, Sydney, Australia uh, with Professor Sonobin, who's a world-renowned shoulder surgeon uh, in Sydney. Um, and, you know, that was a great experience to be, you know, hands-on in there, you know, seeing how he does things and how he gets his exposure. So I think there's a lot to, to, to say or the value of, of seeing things from a different perspective. So really, it's um, if if they want to succeed, they must be willing to travel. Well, yeah, Sydney is a little bit. <laughs> that's travel. Yeah, yeah, and definitely. 
And then in addition to learning from other people, because then how else does someone in, in terms of like, because it is a different thought process and it is a different haptic process as well of going from lap to RAS. How can they train themselves in terms of a, um, a whole different uh, neuroplasticity of training the uh, hand-eye coordination of it all? What else can they do? You know, I don't think it's something that you can, you know, like if you're an athlete, you know, go in the gym and, you know, work on your running and stuff like that. I, I think in these situations, because, you know, when I trained, obviously robotics was, you know, not, I would say it probably wasn't even existed, um, you know, 25 years ago. Um, so, and, you know, I was able to accomplish, you know, what I needed to. So I think it's really just, you know, like I said, it's, it's, it's spending time with the people who do it. So understanding why and, and how it works. Uh, and then also, you know, when you can, uh, you know, getting in a lab, um, and, and doing the, uh, cadaver work, cause that, although not as realistic as surgery is as close as we have. Um, I don't think augmented reality for training in this situation is going to be as helpful. I think it's more of a hands-on with, with a cadaver. Um, so, uh, and then spending time, if you if you have that time to to work actually and scrub in and and learn a little bit more. So really, it's it's a there just is no real proper substitute for just doing it. In this situation, I just don't think it exists. That makes sense. Um, what other kind of misconceptions do uh, do people have? Uh, what kind of common questions from patients that that you hear all the time? Yeah. So I think that uh, you know. Like I said, first of all, the biggest one is like, you know, what's the robot doing? You know, are you going to be in the room with it? You know, so it's really educating them on, you know, this is obviously an extension of me as opposed to uh, uh, sitting in the corner and playing, you know, playing a video game while it's working on you. Um, you know, I think that uh, patients, you know, they're concerned, you know, is there a higher cost? You know, and, and right now, uh, the only additional cost besides whatever's open to do the procedures or the soft goods um, is really the CAT scan. Beyond that, uh, you know, there's not a higher charge for the procedure, whether it's done manually or robotically. It's the same charge. Um, and, you know, I, I tell people, you know, it's very similar to manual in terms of from the outside, it's going to look the same. You know, but based on what we do intraoperative, uh, specifically in the knee, you know, we're not doing intramedullary alignment guides. Uh, so you're, you're not uh, necessarily violating the canal as much as you would uh, for a traditional or a manual surgery. So the potential there for less bleeding, less um, pain is there. Uh, you know, I haven't dug down deep to say that that's, you know, been a benefit to my patients or not. You know, I don't feel like I'm getting calls for pain medication like I used to, but I, I can't say that that's a, you know, a true statement in and of itself. You know, things have changed as far as pain medication across the board. We're using a lot more uh, additional types of medications to control pain and not just narcotics. So, and that's been very important for, for our success. That makes sense. I mean, the papers have got excellent uh, um, results on the, on the post-operative care around it all. And then uh, more than just complications, we've started to touch on the subject with other people around uh, prehabilitation of, um, and it's not massively disgusting in surgery, but do you have any kind of prehab program in terms of diet, nutrition, and exercise and lifestyle before they come in to see you? And have you found that that's any difference? So, you know, I definitely think that the, the, 
the best you can be going in, whether it's, you know, health wise uh, or, you know, weight wise and stuff like that is, is gives you the best chance to coming out better uh, after surgery. So, you know, we do try to incorporate those things that, you know, we know work, you know, keeping their A1C below, uh, below six, uh, keeping their BMI below 40, uh, you know, having them not smoke for two weeks before surgery, you know, we try to, to enforce these things. You know, unfortunately, there are patients out there that, you know, they are, are their BMI is way above 40, but they're debilitated. Uh, and, you know, new literature coming out uh, says that, you know, they deserve treatment as well. You know, obviously, you know, I had a patient come in uh, yesterday, her hip is, it's gone. I mean, it is just, she had a fall four months ago, probably had a femoral head fracture that she never got treated. And now, uh, you know, the ball is, is, is half its size that it should be and it's bone rubbing bone and she's miserable, but she, her BMI is, you know, over 45, um, you know, but we had the discussion that, look, you know, your, your, your surgery is going to be more challenging technically. Um, the risk for you are going to be higher. Um, you know, she has talked about, you know, potentially uh, some type of bariatric type surgery, uh, you know, but that requires a, a long runway. You know, so we had a very uh, personal conversation with her and her husband about, you know, what does it look like if we do surgery? You know, what are we faced with in terms of, you know, you know, the goal is not to make you worse than you are, but, you know, the risks are that, uh, you know, if you have an infection or if implants are put in uh, in not the anatomic position because of your size, uh, you run the risk of uh, dislocator and, and those can make you worse than you are right now, even though you feel like this is the worst, you know? So, you know, we had the conversation, we'll have another conversation. It's not, you know, we just don't meet and, and go right to the operating room. We have to work these things out and make sure that everybody's on the same page. But ideally we would love everybody to be, you know, BMI of 35, non-smoker, uh, active, uh, aerobically, you know, walker, runner, biker, uh, you know, something that gives us the best chance for them to have the best outcome. Um, unfortunately, you know, that's not everybody that walks in the door. I understand. And then for patients with a larger BMI, is there any advantages to using the robots um, over manual in terms of reach and ability? Because there still is a physical space to move a new mover around. Yeah, you know, initially I was concerned that it would be harder to get the robotic arm into position. Uh, on those patients that we have operated on that that have a, a larger BMI, we haven't seen that. So I've been actually very happy with uh, where the robot comes into play. Um, and I feel like it gives me a better visualization because visually I can't see everything I need to see because of uh, the depth of the of the of the the acetabulum specifically. Um, with regards to position and stuff. So I, I feel like it gives me more of a, a comfort knowing that, you know, we're getting into what anatomically we want to do. Uh, so I've been happy with the, the robotic arm in these larger patients. In the knee, it's it's a little bit less concerning because, you know, the knee is a, a lot easier to expose. It's not as um, deep, I should say. I was thinking more of hip and then positioning and then the, the team around the person and then the, the physical reach. And then because then you can't adjust your arm length. So yeah. it's. I mean, orthopedics is definitely an active surgery. You know, it's it's at times you you, you end the day, and you're just physically and mentally exhausted, uh, you know, um, 
I had a post recently about uh, our Monday and Tuesday of this week, we did six revisions and it was physically and mentally exhausting and challenging and, uh, you know, just trying to maneuver around all these uh, things that we're trying to overcome from previous surgeries. Does make sense. So in, in terms of uh, younger surgeons wanting to go into orthopedics, is part of the advice, go to the gym first? You know, I think that there, that it is important to be physically fit. Um, you know, you, whatever your uh, passion is in terms of exercise, you know, I'm a, I like to do some weight training in the morning then I do uh, aerobic exercise, you know, for over an hour. So I think that that has helped me be successful uh, in terms of my ability to get through these long days. Um, so I think there is a benefit to that. Uh, also, if you're somebody that does like to exercise and, you know, you try to do it before so that you're not trying to get there at the end of the day and shorten your day. And, and one of the main uh, areas that I hear about all the time is uh, back issues with uh, orthopedic surgeons. I'm making the assumption that your, your weight training in terms of your strengthening your abs and your abductors and everything like that helps you to stabilize your back when, quite frankly, getting all different positions while operating. Yeah, I think core is very important, uh, you know, just for living a, a, a more painless lifestyle. But definitely, like you said, you know, some of these uh, patients and what we're doing, we're definitely, uh, and like I said, the Mako Limbo, you know, we're contorting our bodies to get into a position and that does put a lot of strain across your back. You know, fortunately, uh, I, I when I do get back pain, it's, it's something that I could work out in, in the in the gym. Um, but I think it's important uh, for core exercises to be successful uh, long-term in surgery. Because it is healthcare, self-care, you know, unless the, the surgeon is looked after, it's very difficult. It's like the lifeguard with a broken arm. You yeah. know, they've got, we've, we've got to look after our lifeguards. You know, you guys are, you know, the, everyone, you know, the females are all the lifeguards. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I think it's important. Uh, self-care is healthcare. So it's important to be, uh, you know, Practice what you preach, I guess, would be the the thing, um, you know. So, you know, I, you know. Fortunately, I I don't have uh, any major vices that that I that I'm concerned with. Uh, I think my my biggest problem is that I do have a little bit of OCD and do have to exercise in the morning, and I'll get up early to do that. And so, um, I'm sure that impacts my, um, you know, just it is what it is, and I'm I'm good with it. I have diagnosed OCD. I prep all my meals. I have my ice bath. I do my gym. My wife thinks that I'll get anxiety if I break my routine. She might be right. Yeah. And I agree. My, I think I'm the same way. But it, it, it helps the, I'm looking at long-term, it's sustainability. It's, it's not just academia or technical. It's kind of, uh, it, it, even business sat down all day is a physical sport. Yeah, because there's so many people with unhealthy business is unhealthy. Yes. You know, it's kind of like the extreme. We're sat down all day, and in orthopedic surgery, you're physically working all day, so it's both extreme ends. Um, I suppose it would be the question for you is if you would ever need a, a joint operation, who would you choose? Yeah, uh, you know, I've needed a few operations in my day, uh, you know, knee, knee scope, uh, a triceps uh, tear. Uh, you know, I, I chose uh, the surgeons that I tra that trained me, uh, you know, uh, at my fellowship. Um, so, you know, I, I think it's important, you know, to trust who you're going to. And those are the people that I trust. Um, I think, you know, patients need to do their research. I think talking to other patients that have had 
uh, procedures by the surgeon you're going to is important. Uh, give you an idea of of, of who they are and, and their outcomes and stuff. So I think, uh, and that's, you know, that's how, that's that was what it was for me. You know, I went to somebody that trained me that I appreciated. Your website is comprehensive. So I do like that about it. So it's because then people can, you know, I would say most people look up their surgeon before deciding yes or no. So I think the clarity of a website with which can often seem trivial to uh, most surgeons, but I think that it's, it is important because they do want that to read things and do want that degree of confidence. And it's like that official review. And I noticed that you've also got patient reviews on there as well, with which people need, you know, it's, it's, it, they do want to look people up and, and, and I'm sure that there's lots of literature that the less anxious a patient goes in, the better outcomes there are afterwards. For sure. Yeah. I, you know, I, I, I think that, um, access is important, whether it's access to information or access to, uh, you know, talking to me personally, you know, I'm very happy to take a, a phone call or, or meet with a patient, um, you know, let them kick the tires, so to speak, and, and see who I am and what I'm about. Um, but yeah, I think it's important, you know, you know, the patient, uh, testimonials are great. It's, you know, it's great to have, a, a you know, somebody that, um, has had the experience I could say, yeah, I, I did this and this is what my outcome was. And I was very happy. And, you know, I felt like I was treated like a person as opposed to a number and all those things are important. It's really useful. Uh, uh, Dr. Cohen, thank you ever so much for uh, being very open and having a, a really insightful conversation. There'll be a lot of, um, there'll be lots of surgeons that's going to be, and non-surgeons that's going to be listening to this that can take great insights because then a lot of our audience want to learn how to be uh, where you are uh, you know how does the person think how do they act how do they behave what did they learn what are their values it, it's you know that whole teaching and a lot of people the main questions that we get uh, when when people email in to say how do i become one of your guests how do i do this so thank you for for really being open maybe i, I can just see that part of the future might be you as an avatar speaking different languages, teaching people, unless you speak a hundred different languages. Um, but maybe maybe we can map you in an avatar and have you teaching in Chinese. You know, I, I enjoy communication, you know, so I'm very interested in people who are interested in, you know, the things that I'm interested in. So, you know, anybody who's interested in, in orthopedics or or medicine in general, you know, I'd be very happy to give them, you know, my approach, my opinion, uh, you know, the, as, as we know, there's different ways to skin the cat. So everybody, you know, I'm not saying my way is the only way, you know, but, but my way has been successful for me. Um, and, you know, it may be successful for somebody else. And I'm, I'm more than happy to not only share, you know, time, you know, we always welcome any interested uh, visiting uh, future doctors that want to spend time in the operating room with us and, and get a, a hands-on experience of what we're doing uh, to, to, to reach out. And, and we'd love to have it's decades of experience and, and, and wisdom and knowledge in your head. Um, one day, hopefully, we can get to the point of going, hey, we should download this person. That'd be great. <laughs> Dr. Cohen, thank you ever so much for your time. Thank you for listening to the Global Robotic Assisted Surgery Podcast, or GRASP for short. Please subscribe to be updated with all of our new podcasts coming out. If you would like to learn more about robotic assisted surgery, please go to www.roboticsurgerypodcast.com.